Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in today's show we'll be joined by former Education Secretary and Leaders' Council Chairman Lord David Blunkett. But first and foremost I'm delighted to be joined by Anthony Antonio, the Managing Director of Leading Commercial and Residential Property Company Robert Irving Burns. Anthony is also the MD at property investment company Aspida Capital. Anthony, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme this morning. Hello, thank you very much, Scott, and thank you for the invite. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Anthony. Now, um, the reason we're here, of course, is to discuss your take on leadership first and foremost. But considering that we are going through probably one of the greatest tests that this generation of business leaders has ever seen, it would be remiss of me not to ask just how it's been for you navigating the last few weeks and months in light of the COVID-19 situation. Well, I, I think with uh, along with much of the country and, much of, um, and many businesses, it's been... Uh, incredibly difficult. There, there hasn't been a path to follow. It's not something that's occurred within, you know, our, anyone's living memory. Um, most important for us was obviously the health and safety of our uh, of our people here. We employ um, just over sixty people here in central London, uh, and we were quite early in deciding that we needed to safeguard people. Uh, and started working from home as soon as that was uh, practical, having tested our IT systems and all of those um, um, important things. And do you, do you think, Anthony, I'm sorry to interrupt there, but do you think that some of those procedures, such as that remote working side of things, could become more permanent fixture of the way that we do business in this country as a result of this lockdown period? I think that the human... Um, Aspects aside, I, I think COVID has served to be an accelerant. I don't, I don't think anything new um, has come about because of COVID. Uh, and whether it's Zoom meetings or working from home um, or flexible ways of working, I think a lot of the, these things were well on course to happening. And COVID has served to be an accelerant to make those things happen uh, that much sooner. Um, much of the things that are happening now, whether it's uh, as I said, flexible working, Zoom meetings, uh, different ways of commuting, different ways of um, communicating. I think much of that would have happened regardless of, of COVID. It just would have taken uh, a lot longer. Um, the same as our, and you know, and, and battles um, retail high streets. I think there were problems on the high street long before COVID, but it has served as an accelerant. Um, whether that's good or bad, only time will really tell. Mm. We will only tell in time, um, Anthony. I think you're absolutely right there. And just backtracking, of course, to address leadership just that little bit more broadly now. I'm interested to understand what that word leader actually means to you. What do you feel the role of a leader is? I think a leader is somebody who's quite distinct to a manager. I think it's, it's often confused that, that somebody in a management role is a leader. I think a leader is someone quite different. Uh, I think a leader is somebody who provides vision, who provides direction, and, and who gets buy-in for that vision or for that director, uh, direction, whereas uh, a manager is um, about operating efficiently. But just because you're operating efficiently does not mean you're going in the right direction. Uh, and that, that's really the job of a leader, to have a big-picture overview 
uh, of where a business or organisation is going. Of course, leadership and management are different things there, as you say, but there is, I think, a little bit of inevitable overlap between the two, particularly with regard to managing people. Do you think that a leader has to be able to manage individuals? Absolutely. Um, I I think uh, um, uh, a leader must be a people person um, to provide, otherwise you're not going to get buy-in for that vision um, or for that direction that you want to go in. And I, I think that's very important. And I think it starts with um, deciding the type of people that you want around you, the type of people who are your um, your kind of people, if you mm. like. It's something that we've done in our business and that we, we've sort of um, come up with an acronym, if you like, of the type of people we want around us. Uh, and we, we call those people clear. And then that has its intrinsic meaning, clear people. And, through, but also as an acronym, we want people who are collaborative, people who are learners, people who are engaged, people who are accountable and respectful. And that does make the job of a leader much easier uh, when you're surrounded by the right people. It does, certainly. Um, I believe that Nelson Mandela once said, in fact, surround yourself with people who are better than you. And that's certainly some very sound advice to anybody out there that may be listening to this who is aspiring to make it in their business and start their own firm. Um, Also, you mentioned um, there that people do look to leaders and leaders have to provide direction, um, Anthony, very important as well, particularly in a time of crisis such as COVID-19. But when people are looking to you as a leader for that little bit of inspiration and direction when they need it, it can almost feel a little bit of a lonely place considering that you are the one at the top of the tree and there's nobody really above you to refer to. So when you need inspiration, where do you tend to look to for it? I think that's a very good point in that um, care for the carer is a, is a well-known phrase. Mm. And whilst we're there to, to provide stability and support to people, and we do that through a number of initiatives and ways that, that we have for our, for our people, uh, I think it's good to have um, people in other industries that you can talk to who are at a similar level. And if you're fortunate enough to have that kind of counsel to call on, I think that's very valuable. Um, but as you rightly say, it can be very lonely at the top because um, the adage that the back stops there um, is not is not without reason. And linked very closely to that idea, Anthony, just how important do you think that mental health and well-being is in leadership, both in terms of looking after your own and also that of those around you? In- incredibly, uh, and it's. It, you know, mental health charities and, and support groups are something that are very close to my heart personally. And what we have done for our company here is we've laid on a counselling service so that anybody who, who worked for um, Robert Irving Burns can sign up and get um, confidential support, um, whether it's the pressure of working from home, whether it's the fear of going out. Um, it, it's incredibly important. I, I think it. Uh, physical problems are easy to see and identify, whereas uh, mental health is something that can fester. And it, it's it's a growing problem, particularly amongst um, younger people. Uh, and the support is incredibly important. And the counselling service that we have um, was in place pre-COVID, but I think has proved invaluable now um, for people who are at home. Uh, with their own home pressures, uh, maybe one you know one person could be living on their own that has its own problems, 
other people are surrounded by you know other people that they need to support and care for uh, and knowing that they can talk to somebody is is invaluable it is i think that's absolutely right anthony and um what we are looking to do on the uh, the program this week in fact is to try and find some sort of silver lining it from the covid-19 lockdown period in what's been a real dark and dense cloud over all of us and i suppose that sort of mental health and well-being consideration being at the forefront of the mind also the fact that we're talking more about sustainability and working practices are incredibly important but what would you say um has come about that might be considered a positive of the uh, the last few months is there anything that you robert irving burns and also a speed of capital have taken as a real plus point from this uh, i think it's uh, there are always positives and there's always a, a silver lining to every cloud without being overly cliched about it but uh, i think it's it has as i said been an accelerant um and things that would have happened whether it's you know the environmental concerns whether it's people taking stock of their lives and where things are going for them um that, that has all happened uh, a lot quicker and i think um the the positives from a personal perspective is that is is the taking stock from a business perspective it's about looking at how we can uh, be counter cyclical and uh, follow some of the new trends that are coming along in the way that we are working and how we can adapt to those and thinking about exactly what is on the horizon for the next sort of year or so for yourself and for the businesses we are going to have to adjust to a new normal way of living and working that much is clear but what exactly do you think is on the horizon for you Anthony and what do you really hope to achieve during this time? I, th- I think it, it, it's difficult to be precise because it, it's never shifting climate but um, it's clear that uh, real estate and the way that we occupy real estate is going to change quite dramatically whether it's our high street and the changes to planning constraints which are being mooted at the moment so that we can have a more flexible high street, um, whether it's our offices which now need to have uh, bigger distances between them, or all of those things present both problems and opportunities. For, for us as a business, uh, we have always been a bit counter-cyclical in, in our approach, so we will continue to invest, uh, especially now where more and more people, be they um, property owners or occupiers of properties, uh, need good advice, sound advice, both in terms of uh, their investment plan and how they occupy their premises. Um, our, our, our clients have encountered quite a few problems at the moment. We, we tend to act more for landlords than occupiers, and we're seeing um, our landlords going through incredibly difficult times uh, with, with tenants being obviously in, in distress and not being able to pay rents and the like. Um, and for us as a business, we, we're there to support our clients and to offer sound advice on um, how they move their own businesses forward. So um, without wanting to say that COVID has presented opportunities for us, because it is incredibly difficult as a business to uh, navigate through uh, this storm, um, it, it has set us set our value out to people if you'd like in that we are they're, they're able to take advice from us uh, and we're able to provide that and that, that's been that's been invaluable 
It has been a very difficult and sensitive time for many people. You're absolutely right, Anthony. But inevitably, there will be positive aspects to uh, to come from this, absolutely. And it looks as if business is in a position where it can really capitalise on that. Um, It's a shame that we're just about out of time on uh, today's programme because I'm sure we could discuss these issues long into the afternoon. Um, But I actually think, given just how informative it's been having you join us today, it would be wonderful to have you back on the, uh, the show with us in a few months' time just to see exactly how the sector is shaping up in this changing environment. That'd be Thank you very much indeed. I'd certainly relish that, Anthony. It's been a real pleasure having you join us on the programme this morning. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on. Likewise. Thank you very much indeed. I was speaking today to Anthony Antonio, Managing Director of Robert Irving Burns and Aspida Capital. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Leaders' Council Chairman Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords and a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. In fact, during his political career, he was renowned as one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August 2015. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett, and all of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've 
become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. 
Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chiving people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would, people have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.